0: To the Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And with Mike. And together we are rereading our favorite novels, the Aubrey Maturin series of Patrick O'Brien. Mike, it's a whole new book this week. Remind us where we were up to and tell us about the first chapter of this book that we're reaching down this week.
1: Oh, delighted to, Ian. Thanks so much. We had just finished The True Love slash Clarissa Oaks. And in that last half of the last chapter, Jack and the surprises decimated Kalua's army and the French mercenaries. Now, our heroes managed not to eat the conquered leaders at the celebration banquet. And later that night, Queen Pualani joined Jack in his bed. The next day, Stephen watched Clarissa disappear on the true love as the surprise flew after the Franklin. We sadly closed the cover on that one and happily pulled down the wine-dark sea off the shelf. And this time in chapter one, the chase of the Franklin continues pitting Jack Aubrey against a very resourceful Yankee sailing master and Mother Nature herself. We meet some new characters on board, attend a gunroom dinner, and remember to keep one hand for the ship and the other for ourselves.
0: Yeah. Happy times. And Mike, can we just chat about the title for a second here? Because yeah. I, I I love this title. This is such a quintessentially O'Brien-y title. We, we had a little bit of a debate in the Clarissa Oaks True Love thing about whether O'Brien r- really liked either of those. And it looked like it's fair to say that he had a new deal with an American publisher, right. which is why maybe they had some leverage over him to say, you trust us as we launch your books into the American market and we're going to rename this book, hence the True Love. And it seems to me that this is O'Brien kind of kicking back here because the Wine Dark Sea is an illusion itself, an illusion to a piece of literature that is right in O'Brien's happy place. Um, This is an epithet taken from Homer. So even before we get into the opening chapter, which, which includes a lot of the actual real physical, empirical, real world wine darkness of the sea, we're already thinking, ah, this is Homer. Now, Wine Dark Sea is a traditional English translation of oenops Pontos. I've no idea if I'm saying it right. The first word meaning wine and the second word meaning eye. And it was one of these epithets, a repeated phrase that Homer would use to help you memorize his poetry. A literal translation is wine-faced sea. Uh, it comes up in the Iliad, it comes up in the Odyssey. He uses this terminology to describe seas that are dark and stormy and rough. It is also sometimes used in other parts of Homer's work to describe things that are a reddish color, but there's some speculation about whether the redness is really associated with wine or not now i loved exploring this because i'd also recently read a really fascinating book called the world according to color by art historian james fox really recommend it if you like color and visual art and this homer thing is raised in the book's chapter that takes care of the color blue there's a whole chapter just on blue now apparently um, homer had not only used wine as a descriptor for sea. He had also used other poetic language to describe the sea in many ways, including broad and starry and saffron mantled and iron and even copper. I stick a pin mm, in the idea of sea okay, like yeah, it's, that. Right. It's sky like copper. But never anything that actually connoted the color blue. There are reasonably serviceable words in the Greek language that mean blue, at least in the modern sense, kianos and glaucus. They're both actually quite ambiguous translations into blue. They tend to refer to darkness as well as or instead of Colour. So there's there's something odd about whether blue really exists as a colour or not. There are some theories that try to get around this. Maybe Homer was blind. Maybe the Greek wine of the time was kind of bluey, which kind of find hard to imagine, but anyway. Maybe some people thought ancient people and Greeks in particular had a genetic tendency to a cyanoblepsia, an ability to distinguish blue colours, a bit like a, a form of colour blindness. None of these quite stack up, and there was some other interesting research mentioned. By Fox in this book, that uh, anthropologists had read other ancient writings by people that the Norse people, Chinese people, Semitic people, and lots of ancient peoples lacked a common, widespread color word for blue. Hmm. And F- Fox argues interestingly, you know, without really a conclusion, but it's interesting that maybe because blue is such a ubiquitous colour in the outdoor environment, it describes sea and sky, but it wasn't remarkable for exactly that reason. And there's not much in nature that you'd want to eat with, cook with, shelter, sleep with, or admire as beautiful that's actually blue. Most other things in nature are not blue. They're mostly green or mostly red or brown or yellow. So therefore, maybe Homer, like other ancient writers, just didn't have the language to talk about blue in the context of describing the natural world and he reached, therefore, for any other word with poetic associations. In that case, why not wine dark as a, as a poetic, but not necessarily empirical or literal description? But might I guess then that O'Brien might have thought, ooh, wine dark, and, and reached for a particular situation here that allows him to describe the sea as wine dark.
1: Actually, there could be a physical reason for this description, but that's chapter two, and we'll get to that later.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And just to finish off my ramble here, I I really like this idea of these these ancient classical allusions. It would be quite easy, I think, to succumb to the idea that uh, O'Brien's just a bit of a snob and he's showing off by dropping in all these quotes from Homer and he should sort of get over himself. And That's a fair point. But I also like the fact that this language has stayed, this this poetic imagery of the wine dark sea has stayed in languages that are descended from Greek for all these millennia. So right now here in the 21st century in a podcast, we're talking about language written in the 1990s by a man whose literary antecedents point back to Austen and then back to Dryden, who point back to the Renaissance poets, who point back to Virgil, who finally points back to Homer. So we've got this line of descent of our modern usage of this poetic language that reaches all the way back in human civilization to a time when humans were so new to the idea of language that they didn't even know what blue was, which is kind of cool, I think.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's awesome. I, I love that. I think it's part of what rings true. And as as is so often the case, it, it, it seems that, you know, we can't get to it yet. We'll have to put a pin in it for chapter two, but there may be another reason behind o'brien's use of this epithet um yeah. so again wait wait for next week in chapter two
0: yeah absolutely so meanwhile to d- take it to the beginning of the chapter here mike how was o'brien describing this scene just just how dark and how whiny was the sea
1: well, it's, it's great. I mean, it, you couldn't get more whiny here. It, it starts with a purple ocean. <laughs> there we are. Vast under the sky and devoid of all visible life, apart from two minute ships racing across its immensity. They were as close hauled to the somewhat irregular northeast trades as ever they could be. And with every sail they could safely carry, and even more, their bow lines twanging taut, they had been running like this day after day, sometimes so far apart that each saw only the other's topsails above the horizon. Sometimes within gunshot, and when that was the case, they fired at one another with their chasers. So here we have this beautiful scene, and you know something that it, you know quickens our pulse as O'Brien readers, and this purple ocean.
0: Yeah, and and by the way, it's carrying on literally the minute. After almost the right. end of the previous book, so we we always start a new book with that question. You know, is he is he leaping ahead like three years, or is he going turning the page? And it's it's the latter. We're straight into the action here. So the ship that we're chasing reminds Mike. Who is she?
1: Well. You know, the first ship is the Franklin, this 22-gun American privateer hired by a Frenchman. So we, you know, we remember, even though it's American, the French are involved here. The chasing ship, we recognize it's the 28-gun Letter of Mark Surprise, which we remember is secretly His Majesty's Hired Vessel Surprise, which is carrying Stephen Matron, we know, the ship's surgeon, and a British intelligence agent, as O'Brien says, gratis prodeo. Free for the sake of God, that is, you know, free because of his opposition to oppression and his abhorrence of Bonaparte, it's carrying him to Chile and Peru. Oh my gosh, we're still in the South American mission (laughs) for books and books and books. And, you know, he's still working to go contact people to help bring about their independence from Spain. And more importantly for Stephen, without them falling into an alliance with France. So yeah. it seems like he's pretty pleased at the moment, Ian.
0: Yeah, he's, he's pretty glad that Jack is wielding all of his seamanship skills here. Jack seems to be more than a match for the Sailing Master's guile and seamanship. Even though the Sailing Master of the Franklin is pulling off all these Cochrane maneuvers, like slipping rafts over the side with lanterns, changing course in the darkness... Jack Aubrey's got, as the text says here, the same instinct, the same sense of timing, but a far greater experience of war. And this is unusual. You know, Jack coming across somebody who's almost at his level. Uh, not unusual that he's a Frenchman, but unusual that it's somebody that's quite such a high level as Jack. Um, Stephen is also glad, by the way, that the course of this chase across the ocean is taking them straight towards Peru, which, as you said, Mike, is where we're ultimately, eventually, someday, somehow... Meant to be headed. That's the site of Stephen's mission. That's the place where also he can replenish the coca leaves that he lost to rats. I forget how many books ago now, two or three books it must have been. And he's hoping that the leaves will help him to dispel the irrational parts of his anxiety about Diana. And I love this very scientific, very misleadingly dispassionate description right. of, the, of the effect of the coca leaves here. He's look, looking forward to the virtuous ataraxy and ataraxy means a serene calmness, a freedom that owed nothing to alcohol, that contemptible refuge, nor even to his old love, opium, which might be objected to on physical and perhaps even moral grounds. And Stephen deluding himself, God bless him, despite what he saw with the experience of the rats, despite his own withdrawal, he's building up the story in his head that goes, yeah, what I, what I really need now is some cocaine. So but that's a testament to his ability to kid himself along and probably also, Mike, a testament to just how much he's worried about Diana and their daughter.
1: Yeah. Oh, it's a great point, Ian. Well, Stephen goes on talking to Martin and, and here we get again, the book's title phrase, if you will. It's a great satisfaction to see the ocean, a color so near that of certain kinds of new wine as it comes gushing from the press. And as we say, stick a pin in that. It's <laughs> yeah. this, this color, the color art on the Cover of the book. Uh, you'll remember back at our conversation with Jeff Hunt. We, you know, we talked about how O'Brien was very specific about this. Jeff talked about that. Well, they're talking. Martin and Stephen in the Beakhead in and by the the Seaman's privy, um, trying to keep out of the way of the hands who are trimming the sails, and more importantly, trying to keep out of the way of the gunners firing the two bow chasers, you know, and and those guns being captained by Jack Aubrey and Tom Poolings. Hmm. They're firing for the Franklin's topsail yards in an attempt to stop the Franklin, their hoped-for prize, without battering her haul. You know, they're trying not to do her any damage, but they, they want To slow her down and stop her. Stephen says the captain does not like the current combination of the wine dark sea and the unusually broad swell. And here we're starting to get, you know, kind of one of the first notes of this, as you said, Ian, how Homer used this epithet.
0: Mm. And again, it's very visual and very poetic. And uh, maybe he's working hard here. The last novel was all about drama and psychology and people and sex, as Rachel said. Now we're in color and the seascape and drama from nature rather than from humans. So the, the humans are still exerting their pull on the scene though because the bow chase has fire and we see the results. Um, Stephen sees a hole appear in the Franklin's topsail and a jet of water shooting from her lee scuppers. And uh, alumni of Desolation Island know what this means, right? Um, Stephen explains to Nathaniel Martin that this means that they're pumping their fresh water they're drinking water over the side to lighten the ship he expects to see their guns going overboard next and the boats and a cheer from the surprises confirms that the Frenchman's doing exactly that so now the Franklin is lighter without all those things the Franklin pulls ahead and her stern chasers fire together and Mike this is the point at which the story turns I think. yeah all at once one cannonball from the Franklin hits the best bower anchor with a big clang right behind Stephen and Martin. A second cannonball cuts away almost all of the support for the 4 gallant mast. And before Jack or Tom can reload, the whole thing comes down and they're covered in sailcloth. Yeah. To add to this picture of chaos, someone shouts, man overboard, and the surprise with all of her sails flapping, heads up into the wind. I'm like, I'm, I'm wondering, oh, is it Stephen? Is it Nathaniel Martin? Uh, is it is it Joe Place? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, bless him, it's Midshipman Reed. Midshipman Reed, the one-armed midshipman, has fallen in, And of course, as we all know, Jack Aubrey strips off his shoes and his coat and jumps in to save him. Poor old Reed luckily has his one arm hooked into the bars of a floating hen coop. And he's wet and bruised, but he's okay. He calls out to the swimming captain. Oh, sir, I'm so sorry. Oh, how I hope we haven't missed the chase. And seeing that Reed is unhurt, Jack says, okay, fella, clap onto my hair, you know, grab hold of my shoulders and off we go. And as they're swimming along, it's very touching that Reed continues to apologize to Jack at the times when
1: he's not actually underwater. (laughs) Right, right. And, and, you know, uh, as touching as that is, and and maybe that's one of the reasons the crew esteems Reed so much, and and they give him a really unexpectedly warm and kind welcome as he comes back on board. They do like him, as we've said, and they realize that, in fact, we haven't lost any time going after the chase. We're going to have to take time to repair all these sails, so it's okay. Sarah and Emily Sweeting, our Sweetie Island girls that we love so much in Clarissa Oaks, are there to take Reed below for dry clothes and hot tea. Mm. And even Awkward Davis, who's been rescued by Jack twice before and resents him saving anybody else, <laughs> resents anybody else who's saved by Jack, boasts that he's the one that tossed Reed the hen coop. So everybody's pulling for Reed here. We're glad yeah, to see hey, that. Happy yeah. days now, Interestingly, these rescues of Jacks have become such a common occurrence for the surprises that only pulling speaks to him of it. You know, he says, well, you know, you've gone and done it again, sir. And everybody's busy, you know, dealing with the sales, you know, Reed's coming aboard. But they're all working together, you know, kind of unruffled. It's, it's a bit of a different picture, I think. Ian, than we saw just a few chapters ago. Now, yeah. now I certainly miss Clarissa. And I'm sure many of the crew do as well, but it appears that we're just as well off, that she's gone, and we're not alone in this observation.
0: No, we're not. The, the, the lovers of all lubbers, Stephen and Nathaniel Martin, have noticed this. They're glad to see what the text calls the intense, accurately directed, and almost silent energy with which they worked. A highly skilled crew of seamen who knew exactly what to do and who were doing it with wholehearted zeal. So, absolutely. No, no hesitation. Everybody's right back on task here. Stephen and Martin go below to check on Reed. Meanwhile, up on deck, these hardworking guys are sweating under the hot copper coloured sky. There we go. There's a simile from Homer again. Copper coloured nice. sky. West, prompted by Stephen, checks with the masthead about, you know, where away with the chase. There's no ship in sight. And the lookout says it's hard to tell through the cruel orange haze. Okay. Dark sea. Cruel orange haze, stick a pin in both of those. The lookout, though, says that he can see what he calls a twinkle of top gallants. And that's all that anybody can see of what might be the Franklin. So we're still chasing, just we've got this catastrophe in the rigging. Stephen's also worried about what's happening socially aboard ship. Is this going to stop the the, the forthcoming celebrations here? West says it's okay. The gunroom dinner, for that's what they're thinking about, this forthcoming gunroom dinner can go ahead. Look, he says, at how quickly they're going to have the masts swayed up. And Stephen's really happy to accept this. Just as the seamen accept what he tells them about their bodies and getting them to swallow these terrible boluses of physic and them feeling better immediately. It's a really nice picture, Mike, of a a trusting, cohesive, well-functioning ship. All the different parts of the crew esteeming and liking each other. Very, very different, as you said, from how we were only one or two chapters ago. All of these big disruptions may be behind them. However, not everyone and not everything is completely fine, is it?
1: No, no. It's a great point. I mean, after Wes talked to Stephen here, he goes back to his own worries and concerns. And O'Brien recaps Wes and Davidge's history on this mission, how they came aboard, having both been dismissed from the Navy. They're both being the, the main culprits in behaving badly with Mrs. Oaks aboard. You know, and their deep, deep jealousy and animosity towards each other and Jack's threat to turn them ashore with no hope of ever being reinstated to the Navy if they don't change their ways. Well, we know Davidge tried to prove himself on Moahu and, and died in the attempt. And Oakes and Clarissa have now left the true love. And West is concerned. He doesn't know if his zeal in getting the carronades up the, you know, the mountain in Moahu, and his small part in the battle has earned him the captain's forgiveness, or if indeed he's going to be turned ashore in Peru. He does know that the Franklin is a rich prize in which he'll share, even if he does get turned ashore. But he's thinking we're unlikely to catch her before nightfall. And in the hazy, moonless darkness, she could be 100 miles away in any direction, never to be seen again.
0: Yeah. So some some thoughts preying on the mind of Lieutenant West there. And as the conversation continues, we learn more about what's on his mind. Um, he's tormented by the fact that the captain has chosen to promote Granger, a forecastleman, to fill the dead Davidge's position as third lieutenant. And West knows and believes that Granger is a capital seaman. He's a master mariner. He had sailed his own brig before that brig was taken. But West doesn't get along with him, doesn't like him, and doesn't want to be shut up in the gunroom again with a man whom he detests. And so far, that's okay. We've, we've talked about this theme a lot before. But it goes on and we get this deeper perspective of what West is thinking about. He believes that the gunroom and the quarter deck are, in his words, privileged places in a man of war sacred in themselves that they conferred a kind of sanctity on their rightful inhabitants a particular being an identity and it doesn't take long as we read on here to realize that he's not talking about the mystique of sailing ships he's talking about the mystique of a certain class of officers he's talking about class social class a really very english preoccupation and one that he could have talked about with davidge but he can't Talk about with Pullings, for example, because Pullings was a tenant farmer's son. And Adams, although he acted as purser was only the captain's clerk. Note the only. Right. And Nathaniel Martin did not seem to think either family or caste of much importance. Dr. Maturin, who lived almost entirely with the captain, being his particular friend, was of illegitimate birth and the subject could not be raised with him. And hmm. right, West is feeling a bit defeated here. Now, West's instinct, his sort of inside opinion here is that, well, if you've got to promote four-mass jacks, then they should be made master's mates, that's to say, warrant officers. And they should be herded with the midshipmen in order to preserve a bit of social exclusivity in the gunroom. But West knows that even if he was in the captain's favor, which as far as he knows, he may not be, even if that was the case, he couldn't raise that and suggest that with Captain Aubrey because he sees and knows that Jack Aubrey belongs to an older Navy, a Navy in which a collier's mate like James Cook could die a much honored post captain and a foremast hand like William Mitchell, who we met way back, I think in the Ionian mission might begin his career by being flogged around the fleet and end it as a vice admiral rather than to the modern service in which an officer had not only to pass for lieutenant, but also for gentlemen, if he were to advance and this is, a, I mean, I think we've always assumed that the world has got more egalitarian and, and more free and more de- democratic as we've gone on. But actually, in a way, in the early part of the 19th century, the Royal Navy was getting less egalitarian and more class bound. And Jack belonged to the to the older, slightly like, more free thinking version of it. It's a really striking point here. And it kind of sets West up for an uncomfortable encounter. It sets the whole gun room up for an uncomfortable encounter with Granger here.
1: Yeah, I, I remember this, you know, becoming an issue for Tom Pooling's promotion, and yeah. and quite honestly, and, and and I also remember back that you know Wes was dismissed the service for doing, and now maybe I get it a little oh, bit more. Yeah, you know, so has yeah, got yeah. this kind of attitude here. We you know we've seen that before. I, I hope that this is not a new source of division and discontent on the surprise.
0: Yeah, I, I hope we haven't jumped out of the sexual jealousy furnace and into the frying pan of snobbery. We'll have to see about that.
1: Absolutely. Well, down in the sick berth, they hear the cheers as the sails and rigging are restored, and the surprise returns to her chase and a much more lively motion in the growing haze. And as so O'Brien writes, shouldering the strange colored sea high and wide. So again, these repeated things about the colors, the sea's action here. Going up on deck, Jack tells Stephen he's never seen anything like this sea and sky. Stephen says that it's really very much thicker than it was just a while ago when he was up on deck. He said it has an umber light that is sort of a dark yellowish brown. As Stephen says, like a Claude Lorraine, run mad hmm. and this. Claude Lorraine reference is a Baroque French artist from 1600s to 1682. He was an innovator in landscape painting who worked primarily in Rome and Italy, known for idealized landscapes, creating images of nature that are more ordered and more beautiful than nature itself. And in his drawings with a lot of monochrome watercolor washes, usually in brown. So some of, you know, kind of uh, Stephen's almost saying, "Yeah, you know, this is like this guy on acid or something." Yeah, I don't know. That's that maybe is a '60s reference. Sorry, <laughs> but Jack notes what Stephen's saying and and is puzzled by the fact that as O'Brien writes, every now and then, quite independent of the swell, the sea twitches a quick pucker like a horse's skin when there flies about, and then Stephen sees it too, and Jack's never heard of anything like it. And, and, and as I'm reading this, you know, I've, I've got that 10 year span since I went through the canon again. And mm-hmm. that, you know, of a certain age where, you know, I couldn't quite remember what was happening here. And I kept asking myself, what is O'Brien leading up to with all these strange colors, all this unusual phenomena?
0: Yeah. And I, I'm with you and I'm thinking at the back of my mind, I think I know what this is. I think I know what this is, but I really don't know. And it's a very, very mysterious. It's very unsettling. I think we're meant to feel, wait. as we read it, just as unsettled as Stephen and Jack and the uh, surprises were when this was all going on around them.
1: Yeah, this is not Jack going, oh, good, we're in for a blow. Can't wait. This is no, no, what no, no, no. Not not. Yeah. all.
0: Yeah, exactly. So th- there is enough time, nonetheless, for the regular life of the ship to go on. So Jack asks Stephen to come read over his draft of the official letter describing the action at Moahu. He says he should strike things out, add some stylish expressions. And Stephen wonders aloud why Jack is in such a hurry all of a sudden to get this done. Whitehall, he says, is half a world away. And Jack says, well, we might bump into a homebound whaler any day. We're in those kind of waters. And that whaler could carry the mail for us. And Stephen says, well, in that case, I'll look at your dispatch right after dinner. And by the way, I'm going to go right to Diana too. And Killick ensures that Stephen then is on time and properly turned out for this gunroom dinner, which is to welcome Mr. Granger to the gunroom. And I'm sitting here thinking, oh, never mind, is Stephen going to have his hair combed? I'm wondering, how is West going to be? How is Granger going to be? How is the rest of the gunroom going to behave? And it's not obviously going to be an easy time here. Granger is a reserved, withdrawn kind of man. He's well-respected aboard the Surprise. He's also well-respected ashore in his hometown of Shelmiston. And O'Brien reminds us that Shelmiston's a curious little West country place, much given to smuggling, privateering, and chapel-going. There were almost as many chapels as there were public houses. Granger is a Traskite congregation elder. I mean, we'll come back to Traskite in a second. And even though the Traskite's views are controversial, allegedly, Granger and the younger men who came aboard with him were perfectly at home, it says, perfectly at home in the surprise, which was an arc of dissent, uh, meaning an arc of non, non-conformist, non-Anglican uh, church views, containing Brownists, Sethians, Armenians, Muggletonians, and several others, generally united in a semen-like tolerance when afloat, and always in a determined hatred of tithes when ashore. <laughs> Yes, Nathaniel it's... Martin, prick up your ears.
1: <laughs> right, right. Oh, my God.
0: So, M- Mike, t- tell us about Traskites. We've heard about Muggletonians. We've heard about Sethians. I think we've heard a- about a couple of the other sects as well. What's special about the Traskites? Traskite,
1: interestingly, uh, uh, you know, a Christian sect, I don't know if you call it a denomination, but established by John Trask, a kind of an itinerant pastor, preacher, in 1614, who believed in a literal reading of the Bible. Now, interestingly, a lot of these things came out right after the King James Bible came out in 1611. So everybody's like, I can now read this. Hey, wait a minute, this is what I'm reading. It's not what I'm hearing in church. So his literal reading thought that the true Sabbath uh, is the Old Testament's Saturday Sabbath, that, you know, the Jewish observation from Friday evening to Saturday evening, you know, and, and figured that this, this new Sabbath thing on Sunday was just something that the church had made up. It's not biblical. His, the, the preachers that he kind of gathered together healed with the anointing of oil. They observed the Old Testament prohibition on unclean meats, and they eventually, through a number of kind of mergers and, and uh, transformations, become what we call today either Seventh-day Baptists and ultimately Seventh-day Adventists.
0: Oh, uh, you know,
1: which okay. I have uh, a, a really nice congregation of right down the street here. Now, hmm. interestingly, having run afoul of the Anglican orthodoxy, Trask is imprisoned by the Anglicans, told that you know that uh, you know he needs to renounce his ways. And while he's in prison, he continues to read, and then he denounces Easter as another man-made blasphemy like their Sunday Sabbath, and he adopts the Passover and the days of unleavened bread. So what we're hearing is. You know, Trask, I don't know if he's reading front to back, is Mm. increasingly kind of stuck in some Old Testament things. And as a result of that, he's tagged with Judaizing, you know, he's the eyes, you know, this is too much Jewish. He's whipped, he's mutilated, he's branded with a J and he's fined a thousand pounds, which I can't even imagine, you know. yeah, Yeah, This guy is, you know, kind of going, you know, walking town to town to preach here. Yeah. Thousand pounds. And it breaks him. He finally recants and is released. He recants his beliefs. Now, interestingly, his wife, who is a faithful follower, does not renounce her beliefs. And she dies in prison. And, and there was a little part of me that wondered, you know, like so many of the O'Brien Easter eggs, here is this woman who sticks to her guns, you know, even when the guy who starts all this gives in. And I thought, fascinating, fascinating.
0: So he's in a vulnerable position, this fellow Granger. He's he's not a young person. He's not inexperienced, but he's potentially the victim of a bit of prejudice. He, he must have had a tough time at Queen Polani's Feast. If, uh, he doesn't like... Oh, right.
1: <laughs> right, right. Good point.
0: <laughs> and I'm not sure how this is all going to work out. And I'm paying close attention as we get into the next paragraphs here. Stephen is thinking along the same lines he admires granger and he knows how it says here such a man dignified and assured in his own circle could suffer when he was removed from it and therefore stephen wants to be there to welcome him he knows stephen knows that is knows pullings and adams would probably tend to be kind but more than kindness is going to be needed for a man in this position that granger is in he believes that nathaniel martin could mean well but Martin's more sensitive to birds' feelings than people's, as as Stephen says here, and ever since Jack had given Martin the gift of several livings with the promise of an even richer one to come, and, and tithes along with them, by the way, Martin has become selfish. He's always talking about new modes of gathering, tithes, new ways of improving the glebes, including the farmland around these uh, uh, these vicarages. He's becoming a bit dull. And you and I spoke about that, I think, a couple of times in the last couple of books. My He's getting a bit smug. He's not very uh, critical of himself anymore. He's a bit self-satisfied. Very unlike the Martin of three or four books ago, the penniless Martin, who was really never a bore. So Stephen is unsure of how West, this now moody, snappish, nail-biting man. So unlike the cheerful young man who'd rode him to patiently about Botany Bay looking for seaweed, how that's all going to go. Stephen sees West and faithfully for the for the gunroom dinner says oh yes I remember the captain wanted to see you and West says oh Jesus recollects himself thanks Stephen and off he goes to hear what Captain Aubrey has to say to him.
1: Wow well I'll tell you, you know, I'm 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 looking forward to this gunroom dinner. Always want to see a gunroom dinner. But I am a little concerned with all the weather and strange phenomena brewing yeah. and with what's going to go on between West and Granger. My gosh, we just fixed the gunroom, we thought. Let's hope we're not going into disarray again immediately. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, Mike, um, while we meditate upon that, and while the members of the gunroom dinner are just having a glass of gin to whet their appetite, let's you and me both go have a glass of gin. Uh, We'll be right back, ladies and gentlemen, after this short break. So as we
1: enter this holiday season, I want to say a special thank you to our Patreon supporters who keep this podcast going. Patreon.com forward slash lovershole. We love you. We thank you. Welcome back. So as we rejoin, Jack is inviting West into the cabin and says that he, he you know, actually meant to speak to him sooner than this and tells him how thoroughly satisfied he is with West's conduct at Moahu. He tells West that he mentioned him in his official letter and adds, and, and, and O'Brien writes, and I believe if only you had contrived to be wounded, you might have been fairly confident of reinstatement. Perhaps you'll do better next time. And Wes says, (laughs) oh, I shall do my very best, sir. Arms, legs, anything. And may I say how infinitely I am obliged to you for mentioning me, sir. And so I I, I love, you know, Okay, here's potentially a big turn in West. And I love this comedic interlude by O'Brien. Oh, oh, right. You know, I can kind of, you know, I'm I'm thinking about Downton Abbey and the guy sitting in the foxhole. Let me shoot myself through the hand. Yeah, now I'm all good.
0: And I, I, love the fact I can't quite tell whether Jack is having a bit of nudge, nudge sort of camaraderie. Is this, is this a jokey turn? In which case, Ooh. I'm sure West is going right over his head, or is it him going? Oh yeah, yeah you should make sure you get shot in the leg next time. Oh right. yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> both are possible. I think. Well, this turns out to have been the thing that sets the seal on the gunroom dinner. Thank the Lord, Granger is welcomed. He's welcome to the gunroom. He's toasted. In reply to the toast, he extends what he describes as his dear love to all these gentlemen. Steady. He's dressed well. He's dressed in what we learn is a good blue coat borrowed from his cousin, the carpenter, looking pale under his tan. And now now we learn just how it looks here. Tanned, grim, and dangerous. Mm. So there's this contrast still between the, the outward flow of talk and the nice new coat and really how Grange is feeling. Like he's on edge ready to take offense at something. So, in any case, Pullings' and Stephen's goodwill and the surprising flow of spirits from West coming fresh from his interview with Jack, talking kindly, telling anecdotes, telling comic rhymes, proposing riddles, all of these things break through the grimness on Granger's part. Stephen can still see Granger's eyes nervously checking to see how gun remembers eat and drink, and he's, of course, concerned about fitting in. Table manners are a big deal for the English middle classes and people who are very sensitive to that stuff like West. But it goes well, and they break into song. Granger joins in with Farewell and Adieu to You Spanish Ladies. He proposes his own song, and my, I'm sure it's no accident, the choice and the title of this song here, as I walked out one midsummer's morning for to view the fields and the flowers so gay. That sounds like it might have come from someplace deliberately chosen by O'Brien. What do you think?
1: Yeah, it, it's fascinating because if you look at this, it's it's a song is called A Midsummer Carol. Um, and there are a number of different kind of versions of it, slight variations. They all begin with this line. It has some beautiful verses about nature, about love, seems to be kind of around what used to be an ancient Valentine's Day. And in this, though, as we get to some of the versions it's ultimately about a man whose love rejects him. Her parents really slight him because of the rough, rugged garments he wears, rather than these beautiful flowers that in the poem he's asking, and the song, he's asking his love to dress him in. I wondered, is this a possible sign, uh, again, of trouble brewing, giving Wes earlier feelings, giving Stevens concerned about the gun room, and given as you pointed out in O'Brien's description of Granger underneath this good blue coat, this, you know, grim and dangerous man.
0: Very good. So we're not allowed to completely forget all of the interpersonal divisions and rivalries from the previous book. It's very smart. Yeah. To keep us guessing and wondering how it's all going to go here. Well, later we get back into a conversation between um, Stephen and Jack. Stephen says that the dinner had gone off as well as he could have hoped. He notices west's own social gifts that Stephen had never seen before and jack in turn notices that steven's looking a little worn and Stephen attributes this partly to the unappealing appearance of the ocean and a remark that he heard from Bonden, where Bonden was expressing the hope the casual hope that we'll all still be here come sunday and jack says he's been thinking about it all through dinner he doesn't know what to make of it so after steven's read the official letter he says why don't we go back on deck and take a look Stephen reads through this draft He ignores all of this background commentary and self-criticism from Jack and reads out by way of, by the way, excellent exposition for new readers to the canon. You just read through Jack's dispatch here and you get caught right up reminding readers of the Moahu mission, of Clarissa Oaks, ending the chase with the Franklin and Jack's hope that in spite of her excellent sailing qualities, the Franklin might soon be captured. Again, beautiful bit of exposition. Stephen scribbles his own few suggestions in the margins and says now he understands, having read the dispatch here, why West was so happy. And Jack says, well, maybe I laid it on a little bit heavy because I'm so sorry about the death of Davidge. Yeah. But having put the dispatch to bed, so to speak, they head up on deck to see what's to be seen in the seascape.
1: And, and we come right back to O'Brien not missing a beat in terms of uh, O'Brien writes, it was indeed a lurid and portentous sight the sky quite hidden in the diffuse glow now more orange than umber showed an irregular turbulency flecked as far as the eye could see which was not much above three miles with broken water that should have been white and that in fact had taken on an unpleasant acid greenish tinge You know, and I'm thinking lurid, you know, portentous, you know, uh, vivid colors, a sign or a warning that something especially momentous or calamitous is about to happen here. So I'm I'm starting to get that. Okay, I'm gripping, gripping the armchair uh, a little more tightly as I'm reading here. Um, (sighs) Now, Jack says it reminds him of a typhoon that almost did them in. But he keeps looking at the glass, the barometer. And it's perfectly steady. It's not moving. So it doesn't make any sense. It's like if it was that, you know, you'd see the barometer moving. Jack decides, you know what, just for good measure, I'm going to strike the top gallon mass, even though, you know, the crew had worked so hard just a short while ago to put them all up. But the crew doesn't complain because they're all watching the sea and sky as well. They're just as concerned. And then Jack asked Stephen if he should take him through an experience he had about not getting them down early enough. And Stephen says, oh, you know, I'd, I'd love that of all things. <laughs> <And> <laughs> Jack says, well, it's great. We're on deck. I can point out each of the ropes and, you know, everything involved. And Stephen tries to follow and respond appropriately, you know, with the ropes and the spars and everything. But it's one of those little comic interludes, you know, between Jack and Stephen. But the moral of the story is that Jack's delay a long time ago, the one he had been involved in, resulted in a series of small catastrophes with the ship broaching and all of them barely surviving what he called the huge green seas coming aft. So again, mm. just a little bit more of that portent of, you know, this, this could may not go well. Yeah, and it's, I'm even
0: getting the sense that the, the not going well part is not going to be saved until later chapters, ladies and gents. I think that there's something too, coming in the near future here. Anyhow, as they're debating the measures that Jack is now taking, uh, Stephen turns to Jack and says, don't you fear losing the prize now that we're striking top gallant masts down, now that we're reducing sale? And Jack says he'd never say something as unlucky as, oh no, she is ours. But nonetheless, he goes on to say that in other words. <laughs> Uh, he notes that she had pumped her water over the side and was going faster. Stephen adds that after he'd liberated Martin from the uh, the seat of ease wreckage and with this lovely funny fling that Martin's so squeamish about excrement, at that time, Stephen had looked up and seen the prize flying with a supernatural velocity. And Jack concedes that she is fast, but she still can't make it across the Pacific with so little water. So they're going to have to double back to Mawahu. Uh, So this is why Jack has not been wailing and gnashing his teeth. He knows them having thrown their water away means he can predict with even more certainty where they're going to go next. He believes that the Franklin will try to slip past them in the moonless graveyard watch, expecting the surprise to continue flying eastward. And with another twist of Jack's excellent sort of seamanship and insight here, he says that if I lie to in a while and keep a sharp lookout, she'll be in sight to the south by the break of day. So Jack plans to take the ship far south first to make up for the chases leeway, which he's been measuring very carefully. And Stephen says that, oh, yes, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> it's, it's nice to imagine, Mike, how uh, Stephen might have been trying to explain leeway to Nathaniel Martin at this point.
1: That, that would be so good. I, I love that. Well, Stephen suggests that perhaps contemplating Corelli rather than this apocalyptic sea, as he said, might calm their spirits says that he dislikes the sinister tinge on the setting sun, the tawny clouds flying in every direction, and the irregular waves and boils of water. Jack says that he's already planned to let the crew rest this evening and that in terms of playing music, he should like it of all things.
0: Ah, oh, happy times. They're heading down the irregular waves and these wave pitch Stephen now headlong down the companion ladder. Not the first time this has happened. And in the past, this has caused some pretty grave situations here for Stephen. But Mr. Granger, yeah, him, catches him like a sack of dried peas and sets him down. So thank you, Mr. Granger, for being there to save one of our heroes from injury. Stephen's still winded by the catch, and he can barely gasp out his thanks. And this is all a sign of just how violently the ship is moving. And I love the description of their evening with the the music here. Stephen and Jack are in the cabin. Stephen's chair had to be fastened with two ring bolts to keep him safe. And by the way, I don't know why Jack doesn't need a ring bolted chair as well, because I bet he's not standing up to play his fiddle for very long. Anyhow, uh, they're playing their rough, sea-going instruments rather than the fine ones that they have at home. And we get a little clue here. I, I'm going to say even a little bit of musical uh, retroactive continuity, because we learn that at this point, Stephen has a Geronimo Amati cello, and Jack has a Guanarius for a violin. And this piqued my interest a little bit. It's been a long time since we heard about their violins. And I had to look all the way back to find out which one of them had which instrument. We've never heard about Stephen having a particularly fine maker's cello before, but we have heard about Jack and his violin. All the way back in post-Captain, ashore in London, Jack was headed to a violin makers in Bond Street to try out a new violin. And we don't know exactly what it was, but we do know that Stephen said, you have earned an amati for every minute that you spent on the foredeck. So Jack was considering an amati, it said in post-captain. A book further on in HMS Surprise, in the code phrase that's given by Joan Maragall, the Catalan spy, to warn Jack that Stephen's been taken by the French, we get these three code words, mapes, Sophia, and guanerius. And that is explained as relating to the fact that Jack had almost bought a guanerius, a violin by guaneri. So well, even though we never found out exactly what became of the purchase, that's where we were at this point. And now the Guaneri family and the Almaty families were really, really famous, really, really pioneering uh, Luthiers back in the 16th and 17th and early 18th centuries. The Guarneri family were rivals of Antonio Stradivari, the world-famous name that everybody knows. And the grandson of the Guaneri family, Guaneri del Gesù, as he was called, made some of the greatest, some of the really, really, you know, Towering examples of violin making of all time, right up there with the Strads. So, if Jack had a Guaneri dal Geso, in fact, if he had almost any Guanerias, he'd have an instrument that, in today's money, at least, is worth a king's ransom. The Amati family is an even earlier antecedent, really, in terms of violin making. Um, The older Guaneri's, and by the way, also Stradivari, were apprentices with Niccolò Amati, the father of the family. Oh, wow. Niccolò's son, Geronimo, which is a great name, Geronimo Amati, the one that we're talking about here, um, was making violins in the late 16th century. And Geronimo's son, Niccolò the the Younger, was probably in the end the most eminent of the Amatis. And lots of Amati violins and cellos that are around today uh, are probably from that, uh, Niccolò the Younger. So really nice job by Patrick O'Brien, picking out not not just an obvious name, but an interesting sort of in-between name, Geronimo Amati. I can't find very many references in modern auction listings or writings about violins. Uh, I can't find many references to a cello by Geronimo Amati. Um, He was making instruments in the late 16th century when cellos were actually kind of new technology. So not impossible for him to have made cellos. and probably His dad made at least one very famous one but Viola's de gamba and bass files were more his style. But uh-huh. very nice work, and both of them likely to be eye wateringly valuable in twenty twenty two if they were still around.
1: Nice, nice. Well, on their on their seagoing instruments they dash away on this piece that they've played so often and for so long. But O'Brien writes, they always found something fresh, some half forgotten turn of phrase, or of particular felicity They also added new pieces of their own, small improvisations or repetitions, each player in turn. They might have pleased Corelli's ghost as showing what power the music still possessed for a later generation. So I I just love this moment of shared joy between them and the way they could take this music that they played for years and years and still do wonderful things together. And it seems to me kind of an embodiment of their to such different individuals and, you know, their friendship, the improvisation that works. And, of course, it wouldn't be O'Brien with adding a little touch of humor there. So he continues, you know, about Corelli's would be pleased. And uh, O'Brien continues writing, they certainly did not please preserve Killick, the Captain no. Stewart. Yow, 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 he said to his mate on hearing the familiar sounds. They're at it again. I have a mind to put rat's bane in their toasted cheese. (laughs) Thank Uh, you, Patrick O'Brien.
0: Well, the the capers that the ship has been cutting are are still part of the scene here. And even Jack now, a a merman, if ever there was one, says O'Brien, even Jack is having problems and having to wedge himself in. As they're done playing, he goes on deck, Of course, having partaken of the traditional toasted cheese without the rat's bane, he gets up on deck to take in the courses, to take in the biggest of the sails and to lie to, to let the leeway do the rest in time for dawn. Back below in the cabin, he tells Stephen how strange it is on deck. It's black. Not even the smell of a star. Very important that he uses the word smell there because we'll come back to smells later. Not even the smell of a star and strong cross seas flowing in three different directions at once, but still the barometer hasn't moved. They go back to Corelli. They go back to play that Dante again. And this time, never mind the chair being lashed down, Stephen is lashed into the chair. At the end, Jack is in the midst of pouring them port when the ship pitches and it is as if it had fallen into a hole. And O'Brien says, the wine leaves the glass in the air, a coherent body for a single moment. And presumably turning into a big purple messy splash as it contacts with the rest of the cabin a moment later. Norton, Mr. Oaks's replacement, comes into the cabin with Mr. West Duty and reports that the ship is
1: being fired upon. Oh my gosh, this wasn't what we were expecting here, Mike. Right. What? So going up the ladder, Jack hears several crashes in this pouring down rain. He, you know, he has the ship beat to quarters and he calls for West, and he finally finds West laying flat on his face, pouring blood. West is carried below as the ship is put before the wind and comes to battle stations with great speed and regularity. And O'Brien tells us that Jack would have felt deep satisfaction if he'd had a second. Stephen sees West down below, and he's got a severely depressed fracture on both sides of the crown of his head is in a deep coma. And other injured patients are being brought down with all kinds of fractures and gashes. The larboard midship lookout says that, you know, and he's injured now, but he's telling them that he saw this sudden spurt of red to windward and a glow under the cloud. And he was hailing the quarterdeck when he heard something like stones or even grapeshot hitting the topsail. And then there was a great crash and he was down. And when he was laying on the deck, he saw this red spurt twice more. And he says, it's not like a gun, but more lasting and crimson. And he's guessing, you know, maybe a battery or a ragged salvo. Wow. And they're
0: starting to scratch their heads there. And the perspicacious reader will be beginning to put two and two together, I think, about what's going on. But uh, for now, they're all really frightened and really not sure what's happening. Sarah is helping Stephen and tells him that her sister Emily is frightened. Stephen, meanwhile, is worried about the surgical instruments and the probes. How can he keep all of his stuff together and use it accurately and carefully with the ship moving so wildly? The lantern swings wildly with no rhythm, and Stephen can barely keep his footing. Turns out that doing surgery is almost as difficult as playing the cello in a storm. Right. They work right through the night. Stephen's listening to the injured as they come in, talking about bomb vessels and mortars. Stephen wishes that he had his coca leaves to overcome the lack of sleep and also to steady his hand. He performs an amputation on a man, saying how bad it was above. The guy says, this is the day Judas Iscariot was born, this Orkney man. And there's more of this, more of these puzzling, lacerated wounds, these deep tears and cuts. And Mike, this seems like it was going to be a pretty long and a pretty traumatic night for Stephen.
1: Yeah, and and we still really have no idea what's going on here. You know, mortars, bomb vessels, you know, where in the world did all this come from? Well, Reed comes in with the captain's compliments, reporting that the worst might soon be over. There are stars sighted ahead, and the swell there is not quite so pronounced. Stephen is also taking a cup of coffee from Killick, blesses Killick, swallows half of it, and gives the rest to Martin. And ask Reed if the ship has been severely pierced. Stephen notes that he's heard the pumps working and working, and that there's lots of water underfoot for him as he's operating there. Reed says that the mast and the main top have suffered, but the water is all from the ship working, opening her seams. Oh. Uh, and then, you know, he asks about some of the patients.
0: Well, here's the summary. Mister West says Stephen is still unconscious. I believe I must open his skull tomorrow we took wilcox's fingers off just now he never said a word and i think he will do well veal i have set back till dawn and i is a delicate matter and we must have daylight well sir that will not be long now canopus is dipping and it should be dawn quite soon end of chapter one
1: wow wow I, yeah. I, you know, I, I was delighted to see that when we opened the chapter, we were just turning the page from Clarissa Oaks and we were boom, right on in the chase, but I surely did not see any of this coming. And, and really, I don't know what's going on. Clearly, as you mentioned, and we've got hints, we can speculate, but like the surprise, I, I think we're still in the dark here <laughs> and I'm looking forward to the dawn to find out a little bit oh, more.
0: Yeah. And it's very successfully written up but with not very much description. It's all very indirect and just odd little moments of description of the landscape, but it leaves us feeling really uneasy. Even though the crew is pulling together again, they've got this new challenge to their world that's being kind of shifted around them. We've got this social uneasiness still present in some way in the gun room, even though Western Granger seem to have managed to avoid falling afoul of each other and... You know who knows what's going to happen next. Stephen is thinking in glowing terms already of his coca leaves, which has got to be a colossal mistake.
1: Yeah, I'm. You know, and 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 Orion has done such a phenomenal job with the description. He's done a great job, I think, with the it's all going well. Oh, there's a little bit of jeopardy. No, no, it really is going well. Oh my gosh, there's a lot going on. We have no idea what's going on. So, you know, I keep thinking back. Yeah, I'm ready for the dawn. I'm ready to find out what happens next. I don't know. And I think there's only one thing for it. What do you say next week to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien?
0: With all my heart. Shank, that's what they call him.
1: You're right. (laughs) Take him away, Shank, is what they
0: call (laughs) him. All right,
1: that's enough of that.